0: For those of you who give very little because you have very little and what you do give is a sacrifice, God knows your sacrifice. He sees what you're doing. He sees, if you might think it's little, what I give is little. I can't give any more. This is all I can give. But God can take your little and he can turn it into much. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. How about opening in your Bibles? If you have your Bible this morning, open to, uh, to Mark chapter 12. We're gonna finish that chapter today. If you happen to be our guest, and we do have a few guests this morning, we're glad you're here this morning, and uh, we're studying through this biography of Jesus we call the the gospel or the good news of Mark, and we've come upon chapter 12 at this point. Last week, we saw Jesus answering uh, or being asked questions by various groups. All with the intent of tripping him up, all with the intent of snaring him in his own words, hoping that he might say something that would turn Rome against him or maybe the people against him. Today Jesus is going to ask a question uh, of his own. There are three little vignettes at the remaining in the remaining part of chapter 12. like a couple of weeks ago or last week, I think it was, I told you, I couldn't find a way to really connect all three of them in one, in one thought. So these are just going to be three unrelated little vignettes at the end of, of Mark 12. Uh, each of them, I think, has something for us. And so when we leave this morning, hopefully, we'll uh, we'll have something that we'll say, "God, I want to obey you in this way. I will do this in response to what I've learned today." So, well, with that is a backdrop. Let's look at the question that Jesus asked others today, verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the Son of David? Now, Jesus has been teaching in the temple, and surely the religious leadership is listening to this question. But it doesn't really look like to me, actually I came upon this conclusion this morning when I was kind of going over my notes, that Jesus really doesn't ask the religious leadership, he asks the crowd that's listening to him. Why do the scribes say that that the Messiah would be the son of, of David? I don't think his goal, like one commentator suggested, that Jesus' goal is to make everyone look ignorant or make the leadership look ignorant. I don't believe that's true at all. That would be more akin to what the Sadducees did last week with the marriage question. They wanted to make Jesus look foolish. I don't believe that's what Jesus is doing. Instead, I think Jesus is challenging their thinking. And I think he's trying to get them to think beyond the conclusion that they'd already come to and maybe the conclusion they'd already drawn. And he wants them to see that they are mistaken. And and so he asked this question, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is David's David's son? That was commonly taught. That uh, the Messiah would be the son, that meaning the grandson or the great grandson, the great 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 grandson of King David. And the root of this belief comes from Second uh, Samuel chapter seven, where God promised David that one of his sons—not one of his immediate sons, but one of his posterity sons—that he would sit on the throne of David forever. And this is reiterated numerous times uh, in our Old Testament, where David's son would sit on the throne of David and forever. Psalm one thirty two is very explicit in this. And so the scribes all taught that Messiah was going to be the son of David, and everyone knew this. Remember blind Bartimaeus from a few weeks ago? That was what he called Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, son of David. Have have mercy on me. So so they uh, so they all recognized that that. The Messiah was going to be David's son, but uh, they didn't believe that Messiah would be any more than that—that that he would simply be uh, the posterity of King David, out of David's genealogical line. And so, Jesus isn't seeking this this morning or that day. He's not seeking to deny that Jesus—I mean, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. What I think he's trying to do is show them that Messiah would be a whole lot more than that. So to show this, Jesus quotes to them Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And so in verse 36, Jesus says, David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? So why did Jesus choose this Psalm? He chose this Psalm for two reasons. Number one, all the teachers of the law taught that David wrote this Psalm. And the second reason he chose it is because everyone agreed this was a messianic Psalm. This was about the Messiah. 110 would go on to say, Psalm 110 would go on to say that the Messiah would be a high priest of the Melchizedek order. He would be like Melchizedek, a priest forever. So everyone would have agreed David wrote this and he's writing about the Messiah. So Jesus starts off and he says, "Written this psalm written by David, written by the Holy Spirit or empowered by the Holy Spirit, I think trying to show the, the spiritual significance of this psalm, its authorship being God himself. He quotes, he says, David says, the Lord declared to my Lord. Now to understand what David, I mean what yeah, what Jesus is doing here, what David said, we have to kind of go back to the Psalm. And if we went back to the Psalm in Hebrew, we would find that the Lord declared to my Lord, the first word Lord there is the word Yahweh. It's the word from what where we get that word from, we get that name of God from where Moses meets God at the burning bush. And he says, I am, the word Yahweh. That's the name of God. That's the name he gave himself. I am. I am is my name. Yahweh is my name. And so David quotes and he says, Yahweh declares to my Lord. The second Lord there is the Hebrew word Adonai, which is also a word used of God. It's a more general word. And he says, my, so, so Jesus asked the question, why is he David's son when David says Yahweh says to my Adonai, to my Lord. The word Adonai meaning God or sovereign Lord, right? Why does David refer to him as my Adonai if he's David's son? Or better yet, he's, he's only David's son. Why would he call him that? And, and uh, David says, Yahweh said to my Adonai, Yahweh said to my, David says, Yahweh said to my master, my sovereign Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So if David wrote this and it's just David's son, why does David call him Adonai? That's the question that Jesus is asking, right? Why does this father call his own son sovereign Lord? The implication being, David would never have done that. No son would call his, his. I mean, no father would call his son uh, Adonai. No father would call his son the sovereign Lord. It'd be like you talking about your children and referring to them as Adonai or referring to them as, as a sovereign Lord. You simply wouldn't do that. And uh, so in this text, Jesus He doesn't draw the conclusion out loud. He doesn't conclude what he's saying, but his implication is clear. The Messiah was to be more than just David's son. He was to be the sovereign Lord. So in John chapter 10, we have numerous exchanges between... Jesus and the the leadership in the New Testament. But in John chapter 10, we have this one specific exchange. I'd like to read it to you because in this exchange, even though in Mark 12, Jesus doesn't draw out the conclusion, right? Here's what we read in John chapter 10, verse 31. Again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone Jesus. And Jesus replied, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these works are you stoning me? We are stoning you, we are not stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. And here Jesus continues. He says, Jesus answered them, Isn't it written in your own law? I, this would be Yahweh, I God, said, You are gods. If so he's referring to Psalm 82 there, where Yahweh refers to some of these other created beings as Adonai, He says, if God called those to whom the word of God came gods, if God himself calls these beings Adonai, or gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say you are blaspheming to the one God set apart, i.e. myself, and sent into the world because I said I am the Son of God? Here's my point. Jesus is clearly calling himself the Son of God, and though he doesn't and he doesn't make that conclusion in this text, and no one answers him, that's the point. Jesus is saying the Messiah is to be the Son of God. Now the only resolve is, it says, in the large crowd was listening to him with delight. So why were they delighted? Were they delighted because maybe he was stumping the religious leadership? I don't think so. I think they're delighted by his logic. I think they're delighted by what they're learning from him, that uh, that the Messiah was to be not just the son of David, but that he was to be Adonai, that he was to be the sovereign Lord, that he was to be God. So this morning, I would like to challenge us to believe two things as followers of Jesus. I'd like us to believe two things about Jesus that I think are extremely, extremely important. And they come from this exchange. The first one is this. Followers of Jesus believe that Jesus was fully human. So when you leave this morning, I want you to believe this. I want you to understand this. Jesus was the son of David. Jesus was a descendant of King David. Jesus was fully human. He would be called the son of man because he was a son of humanity. He was like all of us in our humanity, yet without sin. So here's what that means. Jesus got hungry like the rest of us. He got tired like us. His body worked just like us. He ate and then he had to go to the bathroom. He had male anatomy. When he got cut, he bled. When he worked hard, his body was sore at the end of the, of the day. He wasn't a superman. He wasn't faster than a speeding bullet. He wasn't more powerful than a locomotive. He couldn't leap over a building with a single bound. He was was like us. He perspired. He needed to bathe. He was fully human. And so this morning, I want you to believe that. I want you to believe that Jesus was human like us and yet without sin. But here's the second thing that I think this text teaches us, and that is that he was more than just the son of David. He was also the son of God. And so believers, followers of Jesus, we believe this about Jesus. He was fully divine. He was fully God. We believe that Jesus, the Messiah, was the son of God. Remember, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And when they said, you are the Messiah, the son of God, Jesus said, man, God has revealed that to you. You've understood that from the Lord. We as people believe with all our hearts that Jesus is the Son of God. And we understand that God is not like us. We are merely one person. He's three. But one of those three persons became human like all of us. We call him Jesus, the Son. In theology, we call that the incarnation, that the second person of God would become like us. He would become human like us, and he would share our nature, but at the same time, he would retain his divine nature, his divine essence. He would be fully God so that he would be the God-man. So what does this mean? Was Jesus as the Son of Man in his humanity, was he all-powerful as the Son of God? Right? That's a question we have to grapple with. Was Jesus as the son of David also fully God in nature? Was he all-knowing? Did he know absolutely everything and everybody he saw? Did he know their thoughts? Could could he read every intention of their hearts? Did he know absolutely everything in his humanity? Well, some people believe that he does, that he did. I don't personally believe that. I believe that when Paul said Jesus did not consider equality with God something that he needed to grasp, but emptied himself, I think Jesus emptied himself of those divine attributes. But listen to me, never divested himself of his divine nature so that his essence, he was fully God. So what does that mean? I I think that means that in his essence, in his moral qualities, in his divine virtues, in his desires, he was fully God. In essence, he was God. In nature, he was God. But he was both human and he was divine. I think he emptied himself of his ability to know everything and his ability to leap over tall buildings in one leap. You know, as God, he would have been able to do that. He wouldn't have any need to do that. Why would you ever do that? But you know what I mean, right? That he emptied himself of those things. That's what, now not everybody agrees there, okay? Christians disagree. Some people believe that God, that Jesus in his divinity retained all of his divine abilities. I, I, I don't think so because I think there's scriptures that seem to point to things like where he said, I don't know that. I don't know that. So I think there's, there's scriptural evidence to, to suppose that Jesus emptied himself of some of those things. Now, Just like us to some degree, but maybe more so, the early believers struggled over this question of who Jesus was. What was he, right? They struggled over it. And it wasn't for a couple hundred years, I think it was actually 300 300 years after Jesus, that they articulated at the Nicene Creed, and they said Jesus is fully God, and he's fully human. And they called this in theology the hypostatic union. Jesus united his divine nature and his human nature in, in one to, to, the, to no compromise of either. And so we who follow Jesus today, guys, we need to believe that. We need to believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human. All right, let me move on. Here's the second little episode. As I mentioned earlier, I don't think Jesus is at this point trying to make the religious leadership look ignorant. I think his goal was to challenge their thinking. But what comes next from Jesus is a warning to the people that are listening to him to be wary of these people who are leading them. They are to be careful. They are to watch out who leads them. So in chapter 12, verse 38, he says this. He also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. They will receive harsher judgment. So Jesus warns the crowd. He says, guys, watch out for all of these people, these scribes. And scribes, you could be a Sadducee scribe, you could be a Pharisee scribe. I think scribes, Jesus is just using that as a as a generic name for all of these in leadership. And he says, watch out. And he, and, he, and he gives them four demarcations that they're to look for, to watch out for. And the first one was this. He says, look out for men who have a desire for prominence. Watch out for leadership, who religious leadership, who wants to be recognized as such. They wear long robes so that everybody can tell who they are. And they want special greetings when they're out and about in public. Now, William Hendrickson said of these men, he says, What the men who are here rebuked were always longing for was not a mere token of friendliness, but rather a demonstration of respect, a public recognition of their prominence. And they wanted to be known for, for being a religious person. They wanted to be recognized for that. Jesus says, watch out for people, watch out for leaders who always want to be prominent, who always want to be recognized for their prominence. And you can tell them by how they dress, and you can recognize them by how they want other people to address them. The second demarcation he says to look out for is look out for religious leaders who have a need for privilege. Watch out for religious leaders who want places of privilege because of who they are. They want the best seats in the the congregational gatherings. They want the head table at banquets. He says, watch out for them. Jesus told us as his followers, he said, when you go to a banquet, he said, don't go get the best seat. Don't go get the best seat. He said, go get a go get a lesser seat back over here. And then the host, if you go get the best seat, the host may come to you and say, hey, man, that was reserved for somebody else. You need to move from there. He said, go get another seat. Maybe the host will come and move you forward. But you don't need to get the best seats in the house. But watch out for someone who always wants privilege, who always wants the best seat. Third, he says, here's the third thing to look out for. Watch out for people who have a manifested greed. And the example Jesus gives is that of these men, they devour the homes of widows. The people that they were supposed to care for the most, they're devouring their homes, he says. And um, so they aren't about what's right. They're about, they're about taking people's money. Now, I don't know what Jesus is referencing. I have a thought, though. Maybe Maybe he's referencing Corban. Do you remember Corban? Corban is when you're rich and you didn't you supposed to, you're supposed to take care of your parents, but you didn't want to, so you said I'm going to give all my money at the end to the temple. And the Pharisee said, Well, then you don't have to take care of your parents because that money is for God, right? Maybe he's referencing that. I'm not sure. My son Caleb worked for a very prominent ministry. I, I could, if I told you the pastor, you'd know his name. He's offering a free book with his ministry, and uh, and Caleb's job was to upsell everybody who wanted a free book. If you called in for a free book, his job was to try to sell you a a six-week teaching series or a 12-week teaching series or some other book or something else. Be weary of men who take money from widows and the poor and promise them riches for seed money. Promise them riches for seed money while at the same time living in undiluted luxury. I'm not going to uh, mention their names, but I looked up... You know, some of the most uh, prominent pastors in, in our world, in, in our country, um, one of them makes 300 million or has 300 million. I don't know if he makes it or has it. 120, 150, 40, 27 million, 25 million, 20 million. And if I mentioned their names, you'd know every single one of these pastors. One pastor who's on the lower end of that scale, he has a $2.5 million home in Manhattan. Maybe that's the going rate. Right. I don't know. He has a private jet, two Rolls Royces, and a million dollar home in Atlanta. And obviously those are rewards for his faithfulness. Jesus isn't condemning riches. All right, let me say this really, really quickly. quickly. Riches are not wrong. Jesus isn't saying watch out for rich men. He's saying watch out for people whose greed is obvious. And there is a difference. Jesus once confronted the Pharisees face to face. And uh, this is what it says in Luke 16. The Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And he told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others. But God knows your hearts for that which is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. Now everyone, the context of that passage, the context of those who justify themselves in the sight of men and what is, is esteemed among men is detestable. The context is is greed. The context is loving money. That is what Jesus says. You justify these your your love of money before others, and other people admire you for it because they want everybody kind of wants this money, and they admire you for having it. He said, but that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in, in the sight of God. And I think he's talking about greed here. Number four. He said, watch out for men who have a pretense of spirituality. And by this, he says, watch out for men who demonstrate their spirituality by their long prayers, who are standing up just trying to impress you by how they pray. On another occasion, he told his disciples like you and me, he said, don't be like the Pharisees who stand on the street corner and pray so that everyone can see him. Remember, he said, go into your Go into your closet and pray. Don't be like that. So be careful of leaders who talk about their own spirituality in such a way as to show off and draw attention to their own spirituality, telling stories of what they did or how long they prayed or making themselves out to be super spiritual. And then Jesus said, these types of men, they will receive a harsher judgment when God judges the hearts of all. And God knows the heart of every man or woman. He knows your heart and my heart. He knows, you know, we're, we're looking at other people now, right? But let me just remind you, he knows your heart and my heart, and he knows what motivates us. Why do you do what you do? So before I go on to the last, um, the last little vignette here, the last little exchange, if I might, I'd like to encourage you with the opposite. These are the men that you're to look out for. What kind of leaders should you have in your life? And all of us need leaders in our lives. Okay, all of us should be leading and all of us should have leaders in our lives. People that we're seeking to, to follow. People we're, that are mentors to us. What kind of people should you have in your lives? Well, let's just, let's just apply the opposite. Look for leaders whose lives are characterized by humility, not pride. Leaders who are happy to be one with God's people. Not stand above, not stand out not always be recognized for their prominence. Look for leaders who are servants and don't need to be recognized or put on a pedestal. Men and women who don't care about who gets the credit, only that God's name is honored and exalted. Look for leaders who are not in it for the money. They don't care about becoming rich. They don't make money for themselves, ever an issue. They don't make money ever an issue for you as well, so that you can somehow find yourself rich. Look for leaders who aren't for show. Look for leaders who love God when no one is looking. Look for leadership whose private life and public life are the same. In fact, maybe whose private lives are more uh, or, or greater than their public lives. And I'm kind of smiling because as I was writing this this week, I thought, well, there's there's a catch-22 in that. If it's their private life, how will you ever know it, right? (laughs) So if we're talking about someone's private life, how do you know what someone's private life is like, right? Well, here's the deal. All of us have private lives. Every one of you sitting here listening to me, you have a private life. You have a life that people don't really see. But here's the deal. You can't always keep your private life private. It leaks out. It leaks out, and people see our private lives. Just make sure when someone's private life is leaking out, make sure that it's in congruence with their public life. Evidently, Jesus is tired. And uh, so Mark tells us he's taking a break from teaching, and that brings us to this last last little exchange in Mark chapter 12. Verse 41. Sitting across from the temple treasury, He watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. And then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So Jesus has moved to the court of women. This is where the treasury would have been found. Bible commentator James Edwards kind of adds some light to this. Uh, he was a scholar who dealt a lot with the Mishnah, the Mishnah being the written-down oral traditions of the elders. Remember we talked about that through our study in Mark, right? There was all these other laws and things that were written down. That was called the Mishnah. And uh, anyway, he explains that as you entered the treasury area, there would have been 13 different containers where money would be put. And these containers were, it's not like they all went to the same place. The containers were like um, different, like we have funds, like we have a missions fund, we have a general fund. When you give, you can say, I want this to go to the general fund, I want this to go to the mission. Well, that's kind of how these 13 containers were. And they were sort of like designated areas of giving. And uh, so you could put it in wherever you want. And according to some of the Mishnah, there would be a Pharisee or somebody who would take your money, and as you gave it, he would announce what uh, what you gave. So on Sunday morning, we'd come in here and we'd give, and somebody would be up here at the front and say, Landon and Courtney gave this amount right here, that kind of thing, right? And I tell you, there'd be an incentive to give there, wouldn't it? I mean, <laughs> there'd be an incentive to give. man, so-and-so only gave a dollar. Yeah, that would... Uh, So as they're watching and listening, the rich people are dropping in lots and lots of money. So somebody drops in a grand, somebody drops in three grand. The priest is saying their name. And then the widow lady puts in two small coins. And he says, the widow lady put in two small coins. And Jesus sees this. Uh, He sees what the widow gave. And uh, he tells his disciples she gave more than everyone else. He said, because the rich people are giving out of their surplus. The rich people are giving out of their excess or their extra. And, uh, and she is giving out of her sacrifice. She's giving her milk and bread money. She's giving whatever money she had for supper tonight. She's giving that money. I think we can all get that, can't we? We can we can understand the difference between if I have a lot of money and I put a lot of money and I give a lot of money, I'm very generous with my money and I give a lot of money, but if it's just extra, it doesn't really cost me anything. But if I don't have much money and I give that money, it's actually it's it's taking away something that I might that I might need. Um I think we all get that. So just a couple of reminders today from this event. I have three reminders, and and then we'll be done. Here's the first reminder I want to give to you. Being rich is not sinful, and it doesn't have to be selfish. Wealth is not offensive to God. God gave some of his people over the years great wealth. Abraham, Jacob, King Solomon. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob probably would have been like our millionaires today in our culture. Solomon would have been a billionaire many times over. It wasn't sinful for God's people to be rich, alright? Rich people can be generous with their money. They don't have to be simple. Jesus isn't trying to degrade the generosity of the rich people that are putting money in the treasury. He's not speakingly disparagingly about them. He's speaking extremely positively about the widow, OK? So if you've been blessed with a lot of financial wealth, you don't need to feel guilty about it. Wealth, in and of itself, is morally neutral. all right? Um, what you do with your wealth can either enhance good or create evil. Wealth can be used for God's purposes or for selfish goals. So be thankful if you have wealth, but recognize its dangers. We talked about this just a few weeks ago, about how wealth can become an idol. Uh, Psalm 62.10 says, If your wealth increases, don't set your heart on it. As a person makes more and more money, they're more and more tempted to begin to think that they need to make more and more money. They begin to make decisions based on the amount of money they can make. Their income becomes the center of their life. And if you don't think this is true, let me give you let me give you a couple of things that I think may make my point. Did you know that the poorer you are, the greater percentage of your monies of your resources that you give to charity? In other words, the poorer you are, you give a greater percentage than if you're than if you're extremely rich. So a survey of consumer expenditures by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics found that the poorest one-fifth of American households, the poorest one-fifth contributed 4.3% of their income to charitable organizations, where the richest fifth donated 2.1% of their income. So, And of course, the richest percent would have, I mean, they would have had so much more surplus than the folks in the the lowest one-fifth percent. If your finances are increasing, be careful. Here, Jesus says, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured in how much you own. So, be good stewards of it. Use it for God's kingdom and God's glory and His eternal purposes. Just don't let it become an idol for you. The thing that I want you to realize is Jesus isn't condemning the the, the truth that I want us to know. The reminder is that being rich isn't sinful. It doesn't have to be selfish. Be careful if you're rich. Be careful because money can easily become an idol in your life. Here's the second thing that I want us to note to re- remind or remember from this little exchange, is God knows, God sees your generosity. God always sees. In 1 Samuel 2.3, it says, For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and actions are weighed by Him. God sees everything we do. To those who give faithfully to Jesus and his kingdom work, God knows you give. For those of you who give very little because you have very little and what you do give is a sacrifice, God knows your sacrifice. He sees what you're doing. He sees, if you might think it's little, what I give is little. I can't give any more. This is all I can give. But God can take your little and he can turn it into much. God sees when you write a check each time whether it be to the ministry of our church family or whether it be to some other ministry. God sees every check you write. And when you drop something in the generosity box, no one's back there saying, hey, look what so-and-so just gave in the generosity. Nobody's saying that. None of us hopefully know. I don't see why we'd have any business to know what you give, but, but God knows. God sees. That's part of the point of the story. God sees your faithfulness. He knows what it means to you when you set up an automatic withdrawal and you give that way, or you give online. He knows how much you give. He knows why you give. And he knows what you sacrifice when you give. And the third thing that I want you to be reminded of from this story, and maybe this is, I think this is the most important. God is moved by our love. God is always moved, impacted. Uh, what's, another, what's another God respond? God, God knows your love when he sees it and he feels your love. So for what was Jesus commending the widow lady here? For what was he commending her? But he doesn't say, right, um, is he commending her because she gave absolutely everything she had? She gave her supper money that night. Um, is, is that why he's commending her? Some people have said, yeah, he's commending her because she gave everything she had. Remember the uh, the rich young ruler, go and sell everything you have and then come and follow me. Some folks say that he's commending her because she did that. She gave everything My thought is a little bit different. I think Jesus is commending her because she loved God so much she was willing to sacrifice for God. Her giving was motivated by a love that led her to give at a cost to herself. At actually pretty good, pretty great cost. She gave everything she had that evening. Right. So I think God is commending. I think Jesus is commending her because of her love. King David, remember when he wanted to offer something to God, he was going to buy a piece of property, and the guy said, oh, no, no, I want you to have it. I'm going to give it to you. Remember what David said? No, I'm not going to offer to God anything that costs me nothing. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul said, God cares about how we give. He said, he wants you to be a cheerful giver. He's looking at our heart. He desires for us to give with a certain heart. And I, I'm suggesting to you that I'm suggesting to you that it is her love that motivated her to sacrifice. That's what God is moved by. That's what God is recognizing. There is no rule anymore. It says we give 10%. There is no more tithe rule, okay? I mean, that might be a shock to you, but that's part of the first covenant. That's part of Israel. We're not under that anymore. So we don't have um, a 10% rule. What seems to me to be the teaching of God in the New Testament is we follow the Spirit and we give out of our love and out of our joy for God. And if, if we take this example here, our love leads us to give sacrificially, not to follow a rule of 10%. And I might add, your giving is a reflection, I believe, of your love for God. Do you hear me? I mean, I think our giving is a reflection of our love for God. And it's, and I don't think it's anybody else's business for me to try to evaluate how you love God or how you don't love God. I'm simply telling you, when you give, remember this, the standard is love for God. That's what motivates us. We don't, we, we listen to the Holy Spirit. We listen to God. So if you don't have much and you can't give much, but, but, but you're giving all you can and it's a sacrifice to you, Know this. Here's the reminder. Here's the reminder. God is moved when you give with that kind of heart, when you give out of love for God. So um, give out of love. Let your giving reflect your love for God. Give as the Spirit prompts you. Give joyfully. All right. That concludes Mark chapter 12. Um. What is your I will statement today? Of those three exchanges between Jesus, that He's both fully human and fully God, that we should, we should watch out for certain men, and, and by, by the opposite, we should seek to follow leaders of a certain kind in this issue of giving. and uh, What's the I will statement for you this morning? What is, what is God prompting your heart? Can I, can I say one more thing before, before we close? About, you know, about the giving. You know, I've said this my entire Christian life, and I believe it to be true. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't want your money. Really what God wants is He wants you. He wants you, all of you. He wants you to follow Him. He wants you to love Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. And here's the deal, everyone. If you love Jesus and you follow Jesus, He has your wallet, he has your family, he has your home, he has your work, he has your hobbies, he has your play, he has everything if he has you. That's what he wants. So I wonder as we close this morning, I mean, does, does God have your heart? Are you one of his disciples? Are you following him out of love? And if not, love him today. Choose, choose to follow him today. Make a decision. It all begins with a decision. It's a lifetime of following, but it begins with a moment. It begins with a moment of following him. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.